Today we're going to press a little deeper into the subject of belief, okay? So you might be saying, man, we're like in the fourth week of this series and he's still talking about the title. And you're absolutely right, I am. We spent a pretty fair amount of time discussing what the we in this series means about how our individual lives in Christ are meant to deeply connect us to the larger family of Jesus in the church. There is a combination, if you will, of our followership of Jesus that is communicated clearly to us in the Bible. And we have referred to this over these past weeks as the me-we relationship. We're in Jesus when we come to him, but he immediately grafts us into the larger church family, the ecclesia, the capital C church, past, present, and future. And we congregate in these local bodies in order to be able to follow Jesus with each other, the concept of community. So today we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the very concept of belief. Here's why this is important. In a series like this, which is largely a series addressing theology, our understanding of who God is, his nature, and what he's trying to let us know about him and the relationship we have in him, how sort of God's, God's hand in our lives shapes our lives in new and meaningful ways, this is a very fancy way of talking about theology. And I don't want to take for granted how essential it is for us to have an understanding about what the word believe means in this. Because I want you to think about this. If you're with us, with, when we take communion, you have seen this and experienced this. If you have ever been engaged with the Christian body anywhere, you have heard this word believe. It precedes every foundational theology we have in our faith. The core things that make Christians Christians, our affirmation of who God is and who Jesus is, we recite these two words we believe before them. And so, for example, I want to show you how belief really matters or why it matters. Last week, I had a great conversation with a congregant in the foyer about the common disconnect some Christians practice today when it comes to what is undoubtedly a foundational belief of Jesus being our Savior, meaning we look to Jesus alone for redemption. And we'll talk about that in detail in some weeks to come. But that's a, that's a belief. We believe that. And we then talked about how some people in the modern church are very comfortable with saying things like, we believe Jesus is our Savior, that he died for our sins, but they struggle deeply or significantly with the practical reality of what believing Jesus, your Savior, what believing Jesus is your Savior actually looks like in your life. In other words, what we believe is meant to shape a way that we live. It's meant to shape our identity in God. The fact that deeply connected to the idea of Jesus being Savior is our desire to follow him as Lord. Because according to the scripture, Jesus is also our benevolent king. So savior is one of the many titles that Jesus is given in the scripture. But as our king, which is another title he's given us, we are to follow him in any, any way that he leads us. And there's a deep irony in this belief example that proves the need for a message like this, for, for the need to discuss this idea. It's one thing to say you believe in something in life. Everybody has beliefs. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But it's an entirely different thing to believe something to the point where it actually reshapes your life. And that's why understanding what this word believe means is so substantial. It is the foundation upon which we follow Jesus. Over these next weeks, I hope to have a really fruitful dialogue about this with you all. And today we're going to begin looking at a passage of scripture that is laden with forms of belief. So I want you to know we're not going to get to everything today. We're actually not even going to touch the, the healing of this sort of ruler's son. That'll be in the weeks that follow. What I want to do today is sort of establish this concept of belief in this passage where there are very common examples of why people do and do not believe in Jesus. It's sort of a, an archetype passage from the ancient world that gives us an insight into the way people see Christ or belief in general in the modern world. And in that passage, Jesus tells us the main issue for the problem of disbelief. There are many expressions of it, we might say. But in that passage, the, the primary reason why people are doubting Jesus is who he says he is is because they want a sign or a wonder to validate who he says he is. 
And faith stories like this are found all throughout the Bible. The Bible is a recorded history of people interacting with God. And some people find him. Some people actually get to the place where they profess belief. Others do not. And then there are those who profess belief and struggle with belief. The Bible is a long narrative about God's revelation of himself to the world and how people embraced that, rejected that, struggled with that, or thrived in that. All of these stories are very important because they help us to know what faith is and it isn't. They help us to understand what belief is and isn't. And I hope that we'll see that what we believe in our faith really matters. These are very short words that have a profound implication on our lives. At least they are meant to have a profound implication on our lives. What we believe matters. Belief shapes our attitudes. It influences our choices. And according to the scripture, it determines the quality of your life, my life, and this one and the one that follows. Now, in a group this size, it's fair to assume that there are going to be people who claim to have little or no faith in anything. There are going to be some folks who have maybe a professed struggling faith, a burgeoning faith in Jesus or something else. Or there are some of you who have so much faith that you can dole it out, you can spare it, you can make it rain, you have so much faith, okay? Over these next, all you laughing are like, that's me, that's me, I'm the faith guy, right? Over these next weeks, I want to look at all of these categories, these common types of faith that people have in our world and certainly in this story. And as we talk about them and pray through them, it is my genuine prayer that Jesus would lead us all to the kind of belief that honors him the most and benefits our desire to be faithful followers of him. So let's start by talking about the, this foundational, undeniable reality of faith in our world. This is sort of the pace car that I want to set everything we're going to talk about. Before we even talk about what we believe, I want to talk about the significance of belief in our lives and in the world. And there is a foundational idea I want to prove to you today. I want you to think about whether they know it or not, whether you know it or not, every person in this world believes in something. Every single person in the world, past, present, and future in this room, believes in something. And so before we go on, we need to be clear about what the Bible means by belief and faith. I want to define these words because these are two words, much like love we talked about a few weeks ago. There are lots of opinions of what these words mean, but there are very clear biblical definitions of what they actually mean. And it's important before we jump into a subject this substantial that we are sort of functioning from the same playbook. And so belief, two sort of ideas here that I want to share with you. They will be behind me and they will sort of serve as a reference point this morning and in the weeks that follow. Belief is a common synonym for faith. That's why I'm going to define both this morning. In fact, it's sort of interchangeable in the Bible. A common synonym for faith. And in the Christian context, keep this in mind, that when we talk about belief and faith, we're talking about this from a very particular perspective. And that is belief and faith in Jesus. We're talking about faith in the Christian world. A common synonym for faith in the Christian context, with the emphasis usually falling on trust in the truth of that which one believes. So the idea here is that there is a truth, and we have some type of significant, deep, maybe even profound trust in that truth. And that's why the definition goes on to say this also implies the transcending of doubt. It is a claim to a kind of knowledge. This is taken from the Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms. And what it simply means is belief is significant trust in something or someone, an idea or a truth. And when we have belief, it, it trumps doubt. So we fully look to something and believe in it to the point where it begins to take fear and doubt away in other areas of life. A great example of this would be uh, if you, obviously, you have all been children at one point, and if you have children, this will make a lot of sense. When a child knows that you love them, when they believe you are there to take care of them, that is often enough to help their fears subside. There's a direct effect. It transcends a doubt. I'm afraid of something, 
the dark, the evening, whatever it is. But because there is a parent who is next to me and loves me and cares for me, I'm no longer afraid of that stuff because I believe in the promise they've made me to keep me safe. That's a great example of what belief means in this context. Belief and faith, since they're pretty much synonymous. And this is sort of the practical definition we'll work on this morning. Belief is, uh, faith, excuse me, is a belief in and a commitment to something or someone. In the Christian faith, it is specifically a complete trust in Christ and his work as the basis of one's relationship to God. At the center of our faith is Jesus. And I added this second element here. It affects every area of our life, our head, our hearts, and our hands. And so while the great theologian Millard Erickson defined much of that, me, I defined the back end of it. I want us to know that faith, that complete trust in Jesus and his work, is meant to shape every area of our life, our head, our hearts, and our hands. It's meant to recreate us in very significant ways. So we have these two functional definitions. And what I want to say as we talk about them is, in a world filled with skepticism, and there's a lot of it, a lot of people will read these things and say, this is silly and antiquated. Uh, Belief in faith is ridiculous. But I want to kind of stick to my first point, that everyone in this world, every person in this world, believes in something. And so the first type of belief system we're going to look at as we look at this passage is the person who claims they have no belief system at all. Before we even get to belief, I want to transcend the doubt portion of it. Because for some of us, we might have great doubts about who Jesus is, or we might be at a place in our lives where we believe who he is, but we have significant doubts about who he says he is in our lives. Meaning we've made a profession of faith, or we've been following Jesus, but we're in a season where doubt, is, doubt and, and fear are ruling the day. Anxiety, not necessarily trust, peace, and hope. And so what I mean by this is, we would be amiss to not talk about unbelief in a series where we are trying to help people garner a deeper theological understanding about who God says he is in the scripture. So please hear me here. It would be somewhat natural for us right now, for those of us who are confident in Christ, for those of us who have followed him for some time, and maybe we're saying, you know, I believe deeply in Jesus. I was raised in this, or I had a really significant conversion in my life where I I looked to Jesus and I believed he is who he says he is. It's going to be very easy for folks in this category to think that this section of what we're talking about, this message, is something good for you to hear, but maybe it's not applicable to you. It's very likely that some folks will say, well, this message is relevant for those who are far from God, but I'm, I'm very close to God. This is a message for unbelievers. But I want you to know that this is the furthest thing from the truth. It is a message for the unbeliever to challenge the idea of the unbeliever, but it is a message absolutely necessary for those who are also very close to God or are attempting to be close to God. The reason being, we all have seasons in our faith journey where we are challenged by things, where we, in the name of believing in Jesus, arrive at a place of doubt again. And maybe, it's, maybe it is, or most likely what I find is it's not a full-blown place where somebody denies Jesus, although that does happen, where they once believed and then no longer do. What I'm talking about here is it's this sort of subtle, this pervasive idea of doubt overcoming truth. Rather, for the Christian in this category, it tends to look like a general belief in Jesus, but we arrive at a place in our lives where we stop trusting Jesus and taking him at his word in certain areas of our lives. This is also a form of unbelief that plagues the believer at times. It's actually a significant one in this passage. What's going on here is a bunch of people are all saying, Jesus, we'll believe who you are or who you say you are if you'll just do something for us. And predominantly, people are asking that he he perform another sign or another miracle. But the person who actually understands faith is the father at the back end of that message or that passage. He comes to the place where he just trusts Jesus' word. And it is through that trust that Jesus does do something amazing. So when we speak about faith, this example here in unbelief, 
My favorite example that illustrates this idea, this doubt reality in the life of those following God is when we look at, for example, all of the times in the Bible, Old, Old Testament and New Testament, where God talks about us being a people that should trust in him so deeply that it leads us to a place where we experience an unassailable peace in our hearts. I say constantly, peace is given to us by Jesus. John 14, John 20, Jesus is, he's given us his peace. In other words, like from the throne of heaven, the peace of God is, is on our hearts. Whether we are pressing into it or not, it is in us. Yet at times, despite the abundance of that promise in the Bible, the fact that God has hardwired us for peace, many of us have life seasons, some longer than we even want to admit, where we are without peace, where our lives are ruled by fear and anxiety, by distrust and doubt. This is a classic example of how unbelief can affect the area, an area in a person's life, a believer's life. And my reason for bringing this up is twofold. The first is this. I want to make sure that none of us in this room remove ourselves from the reality of disbelief because it can affect the most seasoned of believers. Those of us really faithfully trying to follow Jesus throughout the course of our lives, we can suffer from this. There is a necessary humility that we have to have when it comes to this. And we have to have safe places to go. We talked about the importance of the we element of this. When there is doubt or distrust, we have to know that we can go to God with that, but we can also go to other men and women who love Jesus to wrestle with that. That's why it is important to not doubt alone. You have to doubt in community because it's very likely that our seasons of doubt, you'll find other people have, have gone through them or are going through them or will go through them. We're not alone in this. Very important to sort of level that playing field. Secondly, I deeply believe if we are humble enough to, to admit this personal reality in our own lives, then God will take our seasons of doubt and he'll use them in a really good way. He'll continue to reveal himself to us in greater ways while, please hear me, simultaneously causing us to have a deep empathy for those in our lives who are far from God without Jesus. Listen, you are never going to be empathetic. You're never going to want to wrestle with people's objections to the faith. You're never going to want to be patient with your brother and sister in Jesus when they are struggling or doubting. You will never want to be those things if you don't recognize that this is something that can happen in your own life. And so like I said last week, when we are close to God like this, we will have a much harder time judging people for their lack of faith. It's much easier to see unbelief as a statistic in our country, in our pews, in our movie theater seats. Much, easy to, much easier to see it as a, a statistic when we are disconnected from the people who are struggling with it. Because doubt is now just an impersonal religious stat. Rather, when you personally experience it, when you know you are susceptible to it, when you desire to care for other people in it, when you hear the cries of people's hearts as they're struggling with it, in whatever area of life they're dealing with, that affects every area of our lives, our head, our heart, and our hands, just like faith and belief does. And that should compel us to want to wrestle with belief in our own life or disbelief and also help others deal with it. So without doubt, no pun intended, one of the most common reasons people in the modern world reject faith in Christ is because they believe this idea that there are people who believe in stuff in the world, and the thought of that is ridiculous. They believe to have a faith in something, anything, especially in the way the Bible calls us to follow Jesus, is a cop-out. It's foolishness. And in particular, here's where I'm driving today. Some people won't embrace faith in Christ because they believe it means they have to give up the most valuable tool they have in the modern world. This right here, their mind. That's why they won't do this. That's why they won't trust in Christ. They create this sort of dichotomy where they say, to have faith means I don't, I don't think anymore. Now, I want to explain this. In the age of enlightenment, and that's the age we're in, we've got about 500 years of this going on now, 
where the world above all else values the human faculty of reason and the discipline of science. Now let me qualify what I'm about to say here. We really value the, the, the idea of reason. That is actually a, a term in the Bible. There are places, especially Paul, who tells us that we are to be able to give an account, to give a reason for what we believe. We're not at all against the mind in using it. We think God has created it, and it is a powerful tool. We are also not against science. I always say when we speak about science that science has some significant things it communicates to the world, some truths, but it also has areas that it cannot communicate into. For example, science is really concerned with the mechanics of how life came into, the be into being, but they don't really spend as much time about meaning and value, okay? Where in the Christian faith, there's a much greater emphasis on the whys of human life than there is the mechanic. And so rather than always juxtaposing these two disciplines, I think it's best for us at times to see where they coincide with each other, recognizing that there are still significant questions each discipline has to address towards the other one. But whether you like it or not, the world has questions about the mechanics of life and the meaning of life. And I believe this is because we've been created in the image of God, and we hunger to know these things. So when we speak of reason and science, please don't hear me saying that I want to affirm we should not use our minds or we should not value science. I have a son who is a diabetic, and believe me, because of medical science, it's amazing seeing what happens. Science is a beautiful thing. However, in a world that elevates reason and science to the same place where we try to place God, we can see naturally, at least we should see naturally, why this cultural objection makes a lot of sense. Why so many people are prescribing to this or subscribing to it. Those are the gods of the modern world. And if you are a student of culture, this objection isn't a hard one to read or understand. When you understand the world you live in, then you can better understand how to communicate the truths of God into it. Furthermore, if we truly want to continue to see people come to faith in the way we're talking about, in Jesus, and follow him in this life, then it would serve us well to understand the language of the world that we live in and to learn how to communicate what we believe in a way that is sensible. So to make sense of this, I want to turn to the words of a person I quote relatively often in this room. He is a, or was, a world-renowned English atheist, my favorite atheist without question. His name is Christopher Hitchens, and if you're into this at all, you've probably heard of him. If you're not, you need to know who he is because he was a person who essentially shaped a hemisphere of belief for about 30 years. Without doubt, he is my favorite atheist. And every time I mention him, I always mention the fact that he regretfully passed away from cancer in 2011. And when he did, I believe the world lost the greatest atheist it ever had. And I say this because he is one of only a handful of people that were really consistent enough in their atheistic thinking, their unbelief. This is a, a, a word people throw around, around a lot today. I'm an atheist or I don't believe. But the truth is that if you really process that with most people, it's incredibly inconsistent. The majority of people I talk to even if they claim to not believe in something, they're probably more agnostic, meaning when you parse their language, they sort of think there could be a something out there. They just don't believe in what you believe in. Atheism is truly rare in our world today. And it's very important that we, we look to atheists, not to follow them, but to recognize the problem with the consistency of this belief. It's, it's important that they're consistent, but it's a problem when you actually find out the issue with their consistency. And so while his opinion, his belief, was never enough to, to convince me to affirm his position on faith, over the years, it just caused me to have a great deal of respect for him. Because in many ways, think about this, he too committed his life to preaching a gospel. It was just coming from a different angle, one that was trying to lead people to the well of unbelief, where we're trying to sort of give a reason for why we think belief in Jesus is the most logical thing we can prescribe to or subscribe to in this world. And so let's look at one of his most famous commentaries about faith and belief. This was taken from a conference years ago in Birmingham, Alabama. He's a Brit by birth, but uh, spent a lot of time in America speaking about these ideas. 
And he said this, it'll be behind me. Those who have faith, and now he's not particularly zeroing in on the Christian faith. This is faith in general, but we are zeroing in on the Christian faith today. Those who have faith all make the same mistake. He says, they take the only real faculty we have that distinguishes us from other primates and other animals, the faculty of reason, this is the human mind, and they replace that with the idea that faith is a virtue. And the summation of his article, of his commentary, is this. Ultimately, he says, this is a form of weakness, and it is a refuge in cowardice. This is why I love this guy, because he's one of the only people on earth that insults me so deeply, and I still want more. Like, he can say this stuff to me. The words are so stinging, if you think about this, okay? It's, it's a great insult to people of faith. Yet, whenever I read them, I never feel insulted. He basically said, you have to choose today if you want to be a human or a monkey. That's your option, okay? And if you believe in Jesus, then you're a monkey. I rather enjoy being insulted by him. And I think it's because of his thick British accent that it's so easy for me to be insulted by him. I mean, you can say the rudest things to people with a British accent. Just try it at Red Robin today and see what happens. Uh, You can say the rudest things to people, and they just think you're being nice when it comes across that way. I mean, he just called me a monkey, and I'm like, cheerio, give me another one, mate. That's what I want to say right here. (laughs) I read this, and it's enticing to me. And this is true with all British folks, even the ones that are for Christianity. They just have a soothing speech. So this type of thinking is interesting. It's very common, and it's deeply insulting. This type of thinking is very common amongst people who deny having faith of any kind. They might not say it this way, but if you're a true atheist, you really can't say it any other way, and that's why I respect this guy. Let's look at what he said for a moment. Hitchens is clearly saying that those who have a faith in God, okay, a faith in anything, but we're speaking about a faith in God, it is essentially an exercise rooted in being irrational, that they're making decisions that lack clarity, that we're making decisions that lack sound judgment, that we've stopped using the main tool that makes us different from the monkeys, inferior primates, our brains, our ability to reason. It's like he's saying in the evolutionary spectrum that we're, we're taking a step backwards. He's also saying people resort to faith like this because they have an inability to deal with the hard realities of this world. They're weak and cowardly. They cannot cope. Because of that, they farm their mind out to a God who thinks for you. And so in this perspective, which is very steeped in evolutionary uh, progress, what they think is that at some point, this has been the battle cry for atheism for hundreds of years, at some point, evolution will decide that we don't need this faith stuff anymore. Yet faith is growing globally. Every year it has. Not just Christianity. I mean, world religion is growing, generally speaking, has been for, for decades. So there's a bit of a contradiction here. It's going in the other direction. So what happens here is if you take his comments to their logical end, he believes faith and reason, they stand in opposition to each other. You can only have one. There are two entities that cannot coexist in the same person. And he says literally, choose this day whether you will be reasonable and fulfill your role as a human on earth. Take a step forward or you will have faith and act like a less intelligent primate and live your days out like a monkey. That's what he says. Now that sounds really awesome and it's very sophisticated. But there is a mammoth problem with this type of thinking. Here is the biggest problem with believing that you don't believe anything. The solution to his human monkey choice is to declare that a person should simply have faith in nothing. That's what he's saying. Faith by nature is a problem. Therefore, as people, we are better off without it. So he's saying make the choice to believe in nothing. Trust in your own faculty. Now that sounds awesome. However, the problem with this mindset assumes there are people in this world, himself included, that actually have faith in nothing. This is not true. According to our definition, think about it. Let's zero out for a second. Faith is a belief in someone or something. It's placing your trust in someone or something to the point where it causes you to believe in something so deeply that you start 
you start doubting your doubts and you move towards hope. And whatever it is you're hoping in, it is guaranteed that as you dig deeper into people's statements, especially those that believe in nothing, at least the claim of that, as you dig deeper into their statements, if you care about that person enough to talk continually, you're going to find out some significant things about their life and what they do believe in the world. You're going to begin to see that everyone, and please hear me, I mean everyone in this world has faith in something. Our goal, if we understand this, then becomes to find out what their faith is really in. For example, in our text today, a self-identified faithless people, we'll talk about this in more detailed way down the road, you have this group of people who have heard Jesus is doing miracles, and they still don't believe in him. That's why John is so particular about pointing out the, the number of the miracles he's already performed. And what's happening here is they say, similar to Hitchens, it's a different angle, but it's the same idea. They're saying, listen, if you just do something else, if you just perform one more miracle for us, then we'll believe that you are who you say you are. And somewhat ironically, while appearing to have no faith, because that's what's happening here. In that passage, the faithless are demanding something happen to give them faith, right? That's sort of where Hitchens is coming from. While appearing to have no faith, this group of people have a similar faith system as the atheist. Their faith is in something. It is in themselves. Because above all else, they believe they have the ability to look at a faith claim. Jesus' literal ministry, our proclamation of the gospel today, whatever it is, they believe that they have the unchecked authority to look at those things and determine whether or not they are true or false. And so like most true atheists, as rare as they are, they neglect to see the greatest problem with their lack of faith. They neglect to see that they have dubbed themselves an authority in the world and often in the, way, the, the weightiest matters of life. And in doing so, they show us they worship a God. It's a very subtle God, but it is the God of the era we live in, an extremely powerful one, the God of self. That's who this man has worshipped. And that's who most people who have a, an unbridled doubt in belief, that's where they come from. So as sophisticated as this argument is, this, this critique against faith communities is, what is problematic here is that Hitchens has failed to see he too is functioning with a deep level of faith. And if you've ever heard the atheist type, types talk, it will not take you long to discern that those who declare themselves the chief adversaries of faith of any sort almost always have an incredible amount of faith. I would almost go so far as to say a somewhat exemplary level of faith. It is just in themselves. They worship the mind. They worship their faculties in the same way we declare, in the same way we sing worship to our God in heaven. And they're usually so confident in their human faculties. Think about this, that it almost breeds an arrogance. That's why Hitchens can call us a monkey and laugh, and we laugh with them. In evangelism, we'd say this is a terrible way to treat people, right? We wouldn't want our knowledge of something to create a breed an arrogance. But that's often what happens here. They're usually so confident in the human faculty that they have made it, them, the standard by which they judge what is true and false in the world. And they do so with the same level of authority that we would say God and the scriptures have in our faith. I'll just say one thing about human reason. I value it deeply. In fact, I'm hardwired this way. It is my primary way of thinking. But you don't have to go far in the world to recognize that reason is, is, is a polluted faculty. <laughs> And humans have reasoned themselves into some pretty catastrophic situations throughout the course of history. So reason cannot be a god. And to treat it like one is a problem. And this is why a guy like Hitchens or the general disbelief we see in our culture, they have no problem calling millions of people who have faith in a rational monkey or some version of that. Because he made himself a god in his own right and placed his faith in his own reason. And that's what happens here. Make no mistake about it. People who think this way, they have faith like us. They really do. 
They just need somebody from the outside looking in to show them they are placing it in a different person than we are. And it is the God of self. And that is ultimately where this argument begins. For most of us dealing with folks of this type, for most of us that are trying to share Christ with people or explain why we do have a hope in him, what we have to recognize in a very empathetic way is everybody believes in something. They really do. I mean, Rush said that, right? If you choose not to make a choice, you still have made a choice. You sort of can't get away from this. To deny belief in something, it declares that you have some form or platform of authority to say why that thing isn't real. And that platform is almost always the human mind. Now, I want to give you a contrarian quote as we begin to wrap up this morning. Maybe a counterthought to think about. It comes from a person named Daniel Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Seminary and a very brilliant guy. And he wrote in a book called A Theology for the Church, this, when speaking about truth, because that's what we're talking about today, at least in large part. He said this, it'll be behind me, we'll process it for a moment. All claims to truth rely on presuppositions about what is fundamentally real. And a presupposition, I don't mean any insult, you are all very smart people, that's just the idea of presupposing something. Meaning, if we claim a truth in any way, we're presupposing something. If we believe Jesus is true, then that means we, we sort of have a stream of thoughts and ideas that have shaped our belief in that way. So every person who claims the truth, like even one that says, hey, this isn't true, they have a stream feeding their lives. That's what he's saying here. All claims to truth rely on presuppositions about what is fundamentally real. And if a person regards a particular aspect of reality as necessary, and the quotes are my words, reason to the atheist, they believe this is the replacement for faith. Reason is so important, okay? that it is necessary for humanity to continue to be human. If a person regards a particular aspect of reality as necessary, then he, that person, has given it the status of being ultimate. And if something is ultimately necessary, it, is arguably, it arguably has attained a divine status. I want you to think about this in the context of Christianity. In this room, and this is not our language, we have kind of borrowed it from men and women we trust and love in the faith, we say that the ultimate form of an idol is when we take a good gift that God gives us and then we make it something ultimate. And then it, over time what happens is, is it, it begins to undermine the good gift that God has given us. So for example, if God has blessed you with finances, okay, that's a great gift. But if finances become your God, it's no longer a great gift. If finances are used to pledge yourself, if they become an, an incredibly selfish thing, then what happens is a tool God has given you to bless you with becomes an ultimate thing and it dethrones God. You now live for the God of money. You don't live for God anymore. Or with our families, if we get to the place with our families where, this is a, a sneaky one, right? Because family in the Bible is a pretty substantial idea. But if we get to the place in our families where we love them more than we love committing them to God, there's a problem. If I, if I try to shelter my son from the truths of who God is and what he wants for his life, if I make my son my God and I live for him, then what happens is I, I portray uh, an idol structure to him. I start to take a very great thing God has given me and I worship it at the expense of my God. That's what he's saying here. Whatever we give an ultimate status in life ultimately becomes a God in our life. It, it attains a divine status. And so if reason in this discussion, if reason is so necessary, then it is a God in and of itself. And that is why people will worship it. And so my point here in this is this. In Christianity, it is false to believe in Jesus. It's false to think this. In Christianity, to believe in Jesus doesn't mean you have forfeited the right to use your mind. It actually shows that you have chosen to use your mind to question something that most skeptics will not. 
And I would say many can't do this. They just cannot be objective enough to speak into themselves or have somebody speak into them because of arrogance. Most skeptics will question everything about your faith except the root of their own belief system. They'll, they'll really be okay with tearing your faith apart, but really uncomfortable with actually beginning to examine what they look at in life and look to for hope. That's the main issue we're examining here. And if you have ever talked to someone who believes like this, you've run into the same thing. They will often demand proof from you about your faith. They want a miracle or whatever version of that they're looking for while refusing to put their own skepticism and cynicism under the same scalpel they so willingly put Jesus under. You know, ask a strong atheist next time to chronicle the pedigree of reason in the world and see where that goes. It's a pretty challenging conversation if they're willing to have it. There's a lot of faults and failures in that. And that's exactly what Jesus challenges the skeptics in our passage today to do. He challenges a group of people who keep asking Jesus to perform more miracles to prove to them that he is who he says he is. That's what the backdrop of this is. And eventually he says in John 4, it's sort of like he's a little frustrated. In 448, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you, you will just never believe. He pointed out the root of their unbelief. And he said, listen, until you get over this, until you learn to start trusting me for who I am, I got to get to the place where I don't have to prove myself to you anymore. That's what he's saying. And that's a whole big thing we'll talk about in a few weeks. For a lot of us, this is why we can't have faith, because we demand proof from God. And then even when he does prove himself to us, when he does things that really exemplify his goodness and his grace in our lives, we still can't believe unless he does it again. We can never trust Jesus or take him at his word. We have sort of an evidentialist face, transactional. Unless God does this, we won't believe. Unless God changes the circumstance, I won't have peace. Unless God fill in the blank, right? In that short but powerful statement, Jesus challenges a group of skeptics. He's talking about belief here to examine their own skepticism in the same way they were questioning him. And in the weeks that follow, we're going to continue to look at this passage about belief. But for today, I hope we've laid enough of a groundwork to at least begin thinking about this, to understand what faith is and isn't. Why it's important to know that. Because we can't believe anything unless we understand what believing something actually means. At any given moment in our lives, including this very one, you are believing in something right now. And so am I. You know, I got up today and I believed that you were going to show up. That's why I'm here, right? You, when you sat in that chair, you believed that it wasn't going to break. That's why you sit in chairs. I would take a bet if every time you sat in a chair, every time it broke, you would believe that you should never sit in a chair again, right? Is that a fair? You'd be a fool if you did. You'd look really ridiculous at Red Robin after this when you <laughs> broke and fell on the floor. In my experience, when it comes to the Christians I've known, they are pretty reasonable people. In fact, they're very thoughtful people. They're typically broadly read and wise. And what I've noticed is that a lot of them haven't made a decision to place their faith in Jesus because they're a monkey. They've actually analyzed in many serious ways of all the things they could place their faith in in the world, Jesus makes a lot of sense because there is nothing else in this world that can fulfill the promises of Jesus like Jesus can. And so if you think about it, it is sort of sensible to, to, to walk in that manner. There are challenges to that for sure, and we'll discuss them in the weeks to come. But for the remainder of the time we have today, as brief as it is, it is my prayer that God would make it clear to you and I what our current faith is in. And I promise, understanding and applying these we believe truths will come much more naturally if you and I make Jesus the object of our faith. If he is the person we trust in, a lot of these teachings are going to be more, more palatable to us. I hope that truth will guide you over these next weeks, and certainly now. But for now, ask yourself, what is your faith currently in? As we move into our response time, these are the things I'd like you to ponder. Ask yourself what your faith is currently in. 
What do you believe in and trust in most in this life? Ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you this morning, this very moment, about what you believe in? And what is it you will do about it when you leave this place?